Happy Life. My name is Will, one of the pastors here at New Life Press, and if you are uh, joining us for the first time, thank you for uh, visiting us. Glad that you're here with us. We are beginning a sort of short series on the next four weeks looking at our core values. And if you don't realize this, our core values are actually on the back of our bulletin. We have four of them, and we're going to dedicate and devote one Sunday per each core value so that we could explore together what New Life Prez is about. And so today we're going to look at our first core value by looking at a passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to read from verse 10 to verse 17. And so if you're able, I want to ask you to please stand so that we could receive and hear God's word here this morning, both with our head, but also with our hearts. 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting with verse 10. The Apostle Paul writes this to his beloved disciple Timothy and says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood and you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And this is God's word. You could take your seats at this time. <clears throat> well, starting in every September, we kick off what uh, the leadership and members of our church pray together and come together to believe is our, our, our spiritual focus, our ministry theme. And it's for the next 12 months and 365 days, we feel that God is calling us to focus by his word and the truth of his spirit on the local church the church visible, the importance of the church, the importance of your place in the church, your story, your unique gifts, and personalities that really make a big difference when you show up and make yourself visible in all the wonderful ways that God has blessed you with. And so we're going to spend the next year looking at the importance of the local church and your physical presence with all your gifts and stories to make the church that much better. And we're going to begin by exploring the church visible by looking at our four core values. And this morning, the first one that we're going to consider is going to be Reformed in Theology, a core value. I've been in a group once, and maybe you could relate to this, where you have a project, and different people come here with different gifts, but also different convictions. So one person in this group could be all about organization and efficiency and planning out the agenda. A second person cares a lot about aesthetics and says, no matter what we do, this project has to look aesthetically pleasing, culturally relevant, beautiful on social media on the website, have a great logo in the right font. And another person actually will care about having fun, like no matter what we do, make sure that this is really enjoyable and fun. Now, none of those convictions are actually better than the other, but it does show that everyone even in their own personhood, has a core value. Because a core value is not saying that these are the best values or that these are the only values. It's the core value, the essence of who you are. 
And so as we explore our core values, we recognize that there could be 10 or 12 different core values, but these aren't ours. These core values are what we naturally gravitate towards, what we hear about. It's what leadership and myself hear you talking about that we want to echo back to you. This seems to be important to the church. It's what we celebrate, what we are galvanized behind. It's what we naturally extol and talk about in our leftover time. That's the core value. And the first one we're going to consider here today is being performed in theology. That's the basis and the foundation of literally everything we do at this church. So if you want to know our culture, you want to know our DNA, what are we really about? Well, there's four characteristics, things that we love, and we begin with arguably our most foundational one, which is being reformed in our theology. Now, let me try to explain this. Because our prayer and hope is that not just leaders and pastors would embrace Reformed theology, but that every member would. Because friends, whether you realize this or not, every one of you has a theology. You have a doctrine. You have a view of God. Every one of you has a very strong theology, whether you want to acknowledge it or not, because you have a set of beliefs that you use to interpret the world around you, but a set of beliefs that also help you to interpret the humanness that is you. That means everyone's a theologian. Theology comes from the word theos, which is Godology, which is a word of God, a study of God. And everybody has an opinion and word of God. Even atheists, they have some of the strongest doctrines of God, strongest theologies, because when you say there is no God, that's a very strong opinion. So everybody has a theology. Everybody has a doctrine. Everybody has a way to interpret the world. And what we're saying here at New Life is that we want a biblically healthy, robust, historical, theological system that we think is faithful to scriptures that will guide everything that we do in this church, and it just happens to be coined as Reformed in theology, Reformed. And so I want to discuss with you just to highlight and scratch the surface of what this core value is. So two simple points, but actually a seven-point sermon, but two headings. I should say that, two headings. And The first heading is that we're going to briefly, very briefly, look at its history. Where did this Reformed theology come from? Who made up the term? Where did the doctrines get formulated? And we're just going to scratch the surface. We're going to look back in history right around 16th century Europe and England. And so that's the first point, subheading. And second subheading, we're briefly going to scan a handful of distinctives of what Reformed theology is. So first, it's history. Second, it's characteristics or distinctives. So let's look at its history really quickly. If you go back to say, where did this word come from? Where did, this, where did the theology come from? What is this theology? Most historians will go back to the time of what they say, the Protestant Reformation, which is around 16th century Europe. And some of the bigger names that you may or may not know is going to be this guy, Martin Luther, this other guy, Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli, and this other guy, John Calvin. And there's plenty of other guys that are involved in this as well, such as John Knox and Bollinger, etc. But the one guy you want to know about is this guy, Martin Luther. And every time we go to a trunk or treat at this church, there's somebody on staff that puts on this outfit. They wear a monk's hat. They wear a robe. Pastor Paul did it. Pastor Andrew did it. Jonathan did it. They're playing this guy, Martin Luther. And this guy, Martin Luther, was a German theologian, and he had some serious concerns and objections to the Roman Catholic Church. And he was concerned about their doctrine, the way they did a church, and the abuses of it. 
So some of the things that we can't get into is that the Roman Catholic Church at that time said the church and the pope had absolute authority, and the word of God came under the pope. Martin Luther had differences of opinions on salvation in the individual place of faith, so he emphasized justification by faith. He had a problem with the way the Catholics understood the sacrament of Lord's Supper and baptism and the presence of Christ in the, sacra in the, in the sacraments. He had a problem with even institutions like today in the same way where the Catholic Church back then was about nepotism, about money. So they would do a, an abuse of a practice called selling of indulgences where they would say, you know, your ancestors could stay in purgatory a little bit less if you pay me a little bit of money. You could get forgiven of many of your sins if you pay me some money. And so this nepotistic approach where the, you know, the cardinals and the bishops were all getting more money by abusing the theology. So Martin Luther, this really strong and strong personality and brilliant man, had objections to this. And so he started writing about it. That's what's famously known as 95 Theses. But Martin Luther, you have to understand, didn't want to start a new church. He didn't. He wanted to reform the church. That's why it's called the Reformation. But he couldn't get into agreement with the Catholic Church, and there's a long history of this, so eventually he left the Catholic Church in 1520. But a lot of what he actually wrote down and talked about were really protests against the Catholic doctrine and abuses. Protests. That's why you and I are called Protestants or Protestants. It's a Protestant Reformation. So if you're not Catholic, you're Protestant. And that's what Martin Luther wrote about. Now, if you want to define uh, basically what Reformed theology is, there's different ways to do it. But Carl Truman, from a historical standpoint, says this. Reformed theology is a term used to refer to the belief system of these Protestant churches that trace their origins to the work of reformers, such as Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin. Now, Zwingli was in the Swiss Reformation. He was a guy who was also reforming the church, had similar concerns that was working and serving alongside of Martin Luther around the same time. But Zwingli gets sort of credited with actually effecting changes in the church. You know, they no longer worshipped images. He got rid of stained glass windows because he wanted simplicity in worship. And he was the thrust that later led to other reformers, which eventually led to this guy, John Calvin. But the Reformed churches, they trace their origin in their practice in the Reformation in Switzerland, but also their doctrine with Martin Luther that originated in Zurich in 1520s under the leadership of Zwingli. And as I said, later on, John Calvin became the leader of this in Geneva. And so that was the history of this. And what emerged from this are the distinctives in our second point. They were trying to give scripture back to the people. They were trying to give a better pastoral heart to what Christianity and church life would be. And Calvin wanted to capture all of this. That's why he wrote his magnus opus called The Christian Institutes, Calvin's Institutes. And that's why all of us look back to Calvin and part of our understanding of how you and I are saved is called Calvinistic. But it's not because he came up with it himself. He was just describing what was in the Bible, but he wrote about it in the church history. So that's the history of where this came from. It was in a context that was very real. It was a pastoral heart to really care about people and not abuse people who wanted to pay for their indulgences. And so that's the history of this, but let's talk about the distinctives. There's a lot of ways to talk about this, but in our second subheading, I'm just going to run down the major distinctives of what our church believes and what Reformed theology entails. The first one is this, right in our passage in 2 Timothy. If the Pope and the church isn't 
the absolute authority of all faith and life. What came out of the Reformation is to say that the Word of God is. You know, there's this thing called five sola, sola scriptura, but it's the Word of God as the only infallible truth that has the only authority over your faith and life. I don't have authority over your life, not in the same way the Scripture does. The church doesn't, the pope doesn't, the pastors don't. There is authority, but it's a secondary authority, it's a derived authority. My authority as a pastor only comes to the degree that I'm faithful to the scriptures that has absolute authority. So that's the first distinctive. That's why everything we do at this church, we try to ground it in our theology, in our doctrine, in reading the Bible, when it comes to community groups and discipleship groups, missions, understanding faith and work. Everything is about the word of God. And that's what Paul does here in our passage to Timothy to highlight really the doctrine of the Word of God, which may be paramount in this idea of Reformed theology. Because Paul is writing to his disciple Timothy. Timothy is probably about 35 years old. He's a bit timid. He was a little bit sick. But he wants wants Timothy to be bold, and he wants him to be a valiant leader, the best kind of leader. He wants him to be a godly leader. And so Paul writes this letter to Timothy, and he says, In the churches around Ephesus... There's all kinds of problems, and Paul lists these problems in the beginning of chapter 3. We get a sense of it. He says there's a warning here. In the last days, there's going to be persecution. There's going to be a lot of problems. And he sort of describes this in verses 2 to 8. He says there's going to be people who are lovers of money, lovers of self, proud and abusive, disobedient, unholy, brutal, reckless, burdened with sin. And then he says in verse 7, they're always learning but never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. And in verse 8, these troublemakers, they oppose the truth, and they're corrupted in their mind. And Paul says, persecution's coming. It's already here. There's this other group that you don't associate with. And he says, Timothy, associate with me. You know, there's a history of teaching and doctrine. That's why you see this in the personal pronoun, my, because Paul says to Timothy, follow my example, my teaching, my pattern. But Paul basically says, as opposed to these idolaters, lovers of money and self, Timothy, you be different. You be different. You got to be different. The follow my teaching and example. And then he says, Timothy, this is how you're going to be different. And let's read this. He says in verses 14 to 15, this is how you'll be different. But as for you, continue what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it. And how from your childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul says, Timothy, be prepared. Persecution is coming. Don't be like the lovers of money, lovers of self. You be different. And you can do this. And how are you going to do this? He says, Timothy, don't worry. The way that you could be different is because you have two great advantages listed in verses 14 and 15. He says, Timothy, you have two great resources. One is that you have good teachers, and then secondly, you have an open Bible as authoritative word of God. It says, persecution, suffering's coming. There's already depraved lovers of money, lovers of people. Timothy, don't worry, because you have two advantages. You've had good teachers, and you've had an open Bible. That's all that Paul says. That's, he says, that's the core of what's going to allow Timothy to live a faithful life. He says, be prepared, good teachers, an open Bible. And then he says, the reason, Timothy, that the Bible is going to be your ultimate source to combat sin and not be lovers of yourself and money, the reason that you can get through persecution and suffering, and the reason the Bible gets you through this is given to us in verse 16. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, 
and for training in righteousness. And that's where, friends, we get this idea called the doctrine of inspiration. Not that the Bible is just inspiring like a heart-moving story, but it's talking about the origin of the Bible. And it says, the Bible is the only reality that you and I have that literally is breathed out by God. Yeah, it uses human stories and human authors, but the ultimate author is the Holy Spirit, and it's inspired by God, breathed out from God. It's His words. This Bible here is inspired. It came through history, it came through human authors, but the ultimate author is God. And he's saying, Timothy, the reason that you can face persecution is because you have an open Bible. The reason the open Bible is so important is because it's breathed out by God. It is inspired by God. It came from him. That word inspiration, in a sense, actually means breathe into existence. It's God exhaled. God breathed. He didn't breathe into something. He breathed out into existence something, which is his Bible. And that's why the origin of the Bible is from heaven, from God himself. And because of that reality and this doctrine of inspiration, that the Bible is inspired by God, breathed out by God, it means that it's actually without error. It's infallible. And this goes to every part of Scripture. All parts of Scripture are breathed out and infallible. That's why we get this other word called not just inspiration, but plenary inspiration. That word plenary is just an English word. All parts of Scripture, every Scripture is inspired by God and breathed out by Him. Plenary means complete or whole. Because you ever go to a conference and you have breakout sessions, but sometimes the main speakers are plenary speakers because the entire complete audience should be there. And Paul is saying all Scripture, not some, not parts of it, not the ones that are highlighted in red with Jesus' words, but all Scripture, plenary inspiration, is completely breathed out by God to the very words written down, not just the concepts, to the ideas, but also what was literally written down in the verses. And friends, because the Bible is breathed out by God, it means that it has no error, and that's why we get this idea of the doctrine of inerrancy. No errors, plenary inspiration, it can't lead you astray. That's why the Bible, not the Pope, not the pastor, not the church, the Bible is the only reality that is authoritative over you. That's why we care about Bible study at church. That's why our sermons are trying to show you what the Bible says, rather than just telling testimonies and trying to make you laugh, which isn't bad. But ultimately, the job of the preacher in the church is to teach this. We could take in culture, we can be relevant, we could be thoughtful and poetic, but our goal is to teach this to you to see how the Spirit will come from the Bible into your hearts. That's the authority of Scripture. That's the only reality to the degree that we are faithful to this is how we are faithful to our job as pastors and leaders and elders and you as a Christian. That is the first distinctive and the major one in what we call Reformed theology. That's why our liturgy and worship is the way that it is. Our missions is understood in the way that it is. Our community groups are word-based. That's why our sermons are the way that it is because that's the distinctive of what we call a Reformed church. But let's move on. Secondly, that might be our longest characteristic. But secondly, and this may sound weird, is that Reformed theology is one of its characteristics is that it's God-centered. And you're thinking, wait a minute, isn't all religions God-centered? They are, and we're not trying to judge other people, other religions, but I think we are consistently God-centered. This one scholar, Joel Beakey, and I'm summarizing, said this, that the heart and soul of Reformed theology is the glory of God, Psalm 96 and John 17. 
And that's why for this reason, Reformed theology, and even in John Calvin and Martin Luther, they cared about the sovereignty of God, the glory of God, the control of God. They started with God first, and then they came down to this world. Because when you start with this world and all the problems that it is, and then move up to God, you're inversing a very fundamental approach to Christianity. Reformed theology, more than any other expression, gives glory to God. It starts there, even if it's hard for us to come down to our level to make sense of some of the doctrinal points. But it wants to honor God and worship God and glorify God. So that reason is called, you know, Joel Beakey says, it's God-centered theology. This one guy, B.B. Warfield, said this, the Calvinist, which you don't have to know that word. We could get there. We've taught it before. The Calvinist in a word is a man who sees God, God in nature, God in history, God in grace. Everywhere he sees God in his mighty stepping, everywhere he feels the working of his mighty arm, the throbbing of his mighty heart. Even in our catechisms, it says the purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, as Westminster Shorter Catechism Question 1 says. Even Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4.18, when he finishes his letter, how does he end the letter? To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. God's glory and his sovereignty is always placed first. That's why they said, one historian said, back in the days of Geneva when John Calvin was alive, there was a coin. I can't actually find it anymore. I Googled it to get more of a historical context, but there's this coin, and I used it as my profile picture on fantasy, uh, fantasy uh, football, and so you can check it out if you're in that league. But there's this coin during the days of John Calvin, and there's a picture of a farmer, and in the Latin it says on the coin, God gives the growth. And that's supposed to capture the culture and the, the heartbeat of actually Geneva during the time of the Reformation, that it was Godward. God gives the growth. He gets the credit. And so even though we can't go into this, many of you just understand more form theology as just predestination, and some of you don't like that doctrine. And I, I, I get it. You know, how do you understand definite atonement? How do you understand predestination? How does that work out? But I want you to understand the reason that this idea called tulip which is the doctrines of salvation, the reason that John Calvin came up with this is because he started with God-centered theology. What gives God the most honor and glory and what gives most credit to what the Bible reveals about his sovereignty? As hard as it is to take, this sort of very advanced doctrine called predestination, his sovereign will, his election, because only predestination and election gives God the most glory. Only when you recognize that we are totally depraved and unable to choose God first unless he chooses us, that's the only way that God gets the most glory. There's this other concept which you may, we could talk about it later. It's not just TULIP, which are T-U-L-I-P, but there's this other, it used to be on our website that kind of captures the heart of a Reformed theology. It's called the five solas. You know, sola scriptura, sola fide, sola uh, Christus, and it ends on the fifth one, sola de gloria. Because all the other four solas are just a working out and lead to the glory of God. So Reformed theology is God-centered. It wants to glorify God. God gives the growth. What gives the most honor, sovereign control, according to Scripture, is going to be Reformed theology and being God-centered. That's the second characteristic. We want everything to be God-centered. And that's why, you know, it's, it's a challenge for us here, even at church, because there's a lot of things and a lot of questions about ministry that we could engage upon. But there's under the session a question of, like, are we compromising our reform convictions? Is it God-centered? You know, is it, is it consistent with our theology? You know, that's why we don't want entertainment to drive us. We don't want the cultural thinking to drive us. 
but we want us to be consistent to what gives God the most glory as best as we can, tan, can understand and is revealed in his word. But here's a third characteristic. It's not that just scripture has ultimate authority and is God-centered. A third characteristic is that you have this really famous word. R.C. Sproul said a synonym for Reformed theology is covenantal theology. Now, we looked at covenant all the time. Did you realize that this worship here is covenantal? Now, don't get lost in the word. Covenant is, in movies, it's a contract. It basically says God wants a relationship with you. And that when you understand the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, the most fundamental framework for understanding the Bible is to interpret the Bible through covenants. And that the covenant is a relationship, a uniform plan that God saves the people for himself. We see this throughout the Bible. God says in Jeremiah, I will be your God, you will be my people. How does that happen? How do we get to be God's people and his family? How do we go to heaven? Well, he describes this relationship through covenant. And there's covenants throughout the Bible that structures the entire Bible. You have the covenant with Adam, which you call a covenant of works. And then you enter into what we call a covenant of grace. You have a covenant with Abraham and Noah and David and the new covenant fulfilled in Jesus. So you can understand this relationship is brought out in the entire Bible. Whenever you read the Bible, you read it covenantally. So you have a covenant with Adam, which is the first human representative. And then you have a covenant, a relationship with God as family through Abraham, who is the father of many nations. And then you have a relationship with God and the nation, the church, which is going to be the Mosaic covenant and the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7. And then you find us, the church today, that covenant is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You fulfilled all the demands, and now we are the covenant community. That's why the PCA loves that word covenant. Our seminary is called Covenant Seminary. The undergrad denominational college is called Covenant College. All these churches that you see throughout the PCA Reformed circles oftentimes have Covenant Community or Covenant Christ, the Covenant Church. Because the covenant is just saying, we want a relationship with God and we understand the Bible to be structured through the covenant. Did you know, in fact, that the Bible here, as understood as Old Testament and New, that the word testament comes from the Greek word diatheke, which is covenant, Old Covenant, New Covenant. One message, one God, one relationship traces this relationship through the Old Covenant also into the New. Everything we do in our understanding and interpretation of the Bible that leads into practice is called covenant worship, covenant practice, covenant theology. And that's something distinct in Reformed theology that we live and apply according to what our convictions are as a Reformed church. But here's another characteristic. It also means that we're Christ-centered. Christ-centered. Now, the practical application is this. If you ever go to a church and they give the sermon, and if they don't show you how Jesus comes from the passage, it's not a Christ-centered message or gospel-centered message. If it just tells you all these commands to do this and to do that without telling you your need for redemption and forgiveness, to show how in the power of the gospel you can apply these demands, follow these demands and commandments, and they give you a moving story that's really funny, but they never show you what scripture is and where Jesus is in the passage, it's not a Christian message, in my opinion. It's not a biblical sermon. The teaching has to be Christ-centered. Where is that? Look at our, in verse 15. It says it even in our passage. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, sacred writings for Timothy is Old Testament. Sacred writings for us is going to be the Bible. But Paul there, he adds an important note. He says, be acquainted with the sacred writings that make you wise for salvation 
through faith in Christ Jesus. He adds an important note to say that Scripture points to salvation in Jesus. That distinction is important according to one scholar because Paul isn't just merely saying we need to know our Bible. He's he's rather indicating you need to understand a particular way of knowing the Bible. The Bible, know it, know the sacred writings as a story of redemption that climaxes in the person and work of Jesus. In short, Paul says, I'm promoting a particular way of understanding the Bible, which we understand to be Christocentric, Christ-centered, and gospel-centered. Christ is everything to the believers in Colossians 3. The Bible teaches us to count all things but lost for the excellence of knowing Jesus in Philippians 3.8. Reformed theology, as I said, is God-centered, but it's God-centered to the point that it's also Christ-centered because that's how God chooses to reveal himself is through his Son, one mediator, Jesus Christ. The Puritans portrayed the gospel as the greatest love story ever told. The Puritans said the fatherly, heavenly love is matched in the perfect son to redeem the fallen bride, which is the church. And the Puritans traced in glowing detail the work of Jesus as a prophet and as a priest and as a king for his people. The knowledge of Christ is a topic of immeasurable glory and immeasurable riches in Ephesians 3.8. That's why this one guy, John Flavel, said this. The study of Jesus Christ is the most noble subject that ever a soul spent itself upon. God's heart is open to men in Christ. See, everything in the Bible here is Christ-centered. Even in chapter, Luke chapter 24, Jesus says, all the prophets and law, they point to me. And that means when you read the Bible, you don't just read it covenantally, but you read it to see where is Jesus in this passage? How does it anticipate Jesus, foretell Jesus, our need for Jesus? Everything from Genesis to Revelation shows us and tells us about this one story because it's one covenant and one story of redemption pointing to the one Savior in Jesus. The Bible is not a history book per se, and it's not a cookbook, and it's not a how-to book. The Bible is a how-to-be book, how to be the people of God, how to be his family. And that's why you can read everything in the Bible Christocentrically. The Old Testament foretells and foreshadows Jesus' coming. The gospel tells us the birth and the life of Jesus. Acts tells us the continuing work of Jesus' spirit and his apostles. The Apostle Paul's letters, Timothy included, tells us about the life of Jesus in the church. Revelation tells us the hope and the healing that comes when Jesus returns. Everything centers upon the main character, Jesus Christ. And that is something that's brought out so beautiful in the history that we know of as Reformed theology. Here's the next characteristic. We have two more and then we're done. The next characteristic is what we call confessional or creedal. You have all this history. You have all this theology, God-centered theology, Christ-centered theology. Where do we learn this? And one of the things that we recognize is that in the church, we're not just isolated people in the contemporary world. We come from a tradition. Even Paul intimates this. He says, your grandmother, Lois, you know, you had good teachers, Timothy. And he also says, I'm going to pass down what I've learned to you. Follow my teaching. Follow my pattern. So there's a history. We understand that. You know your grandparents. You know your parents. There's a history that you want to honor. One thing about Reformed theology is that we are confessional. That's why we believe in confessions. We also believe in creeds. Even in service, Pastor Paul led us through the Apostles' Creed. We went through the Westminster Shorter Catechism. We go through the Heidelberg Catechism. There's reasons for this. Make no mistake about it. The creeds that we believe in and the confessions that we believe in 
are not on par with Scripture. Scripture is the only authority, but we believe the confessions we believe in are probably some of the most helpful explanation of the Scripture because we can't figure this out ourselves. I haven't learned actually Reformed theology just by reading the Bible. I read commentaries, I go to seminary. I oftentimes go back to our confessional statement to understand some of the points about the Bible. And a lot of times, if you didn't realize this, I go back actually to the confession to learn points about the Bible, not because I'm just curious. It's because one of you as a member have come up to me with a very real question. And so I have to submit to the authority of the Bible and help me to understand that authority. Oftentimes I go to the confession to understand about marriage and church and doctrine so I can help answer the questions that you give to me because I don't always have the right answer. That's confessionalism. Here's the thing I want you to consider. Tradition can both be good and bad. It could be a blessing or a curse. If it's man-made traditions, then the church certainly will get hurt because you can't elevate tradition on the same par as Scripture. But it could help the church when each generation receives and examines and passes on what the previous generation has taught prophetically in the apostolic word. That's 2 Timothy 2.2. And Reformed theology informs our faith with century-old Christian doctrine standards. This is because we believe that there's a history of the church and that we receive the fruit from past generations. One professor, Carl Truman, intimated this about the confession. He said, Carl Truman says, I want to make the note that Christians are not divided about between whether we have creeds and confessions and those who don't. He says everybody actually has confessions and creeds. Christians are divided on whether our creeds are public or whether they're private. So even if a church says, we don't have public creeds, we don't have a doctrinal statement, no, they do. It's just they are not self-aware about it, or it's not public. And so what we're saying, actually, at least the Reformed tradition says we believe in history, it protects us from error, but also that our creeds and confessions are public. They can be examined. You know what we're about. We're transparent about it. We could change it. We have to adjudicate it. We argue with it. We wrestle with it. We apply it. It gives inspiration and help for our devotionals. It informs our worship as it reflects and teaches the truth of the Bible. So every Christian in every church has a confessional statement, but ours is just public. And what are our confessional statements that you could scrutinize, you could ironically engage in, that, you could be tra- that we are transparent about? Well, they're basically different confessions. So if you want to know the full teaching of Reformed theology, there's basically two traditions. There's one that's a Dutch tradition. That's the Netherlands. You know, that's what they call the three forms of unity. So there are confessions that are historically known throughout the centuries as the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Canons of Dort, three forms of unity. But there's also a Presbyterian tradition that we actually more imbibe with, and that's called the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Larger and Shorter Catechism. They're the Westminster Standards. So the PCA in our governing bylaws called the Book of Church Order says that our, our Constitution is going to be the Westminster Standards for our doctrine and life. So that's why we always look back to the confession and we look back to the catechisms. We believe this is a good thing. It is not on par with the Bible, but it helps us to explain the Bible and learn the Bible and apply the Bible. And that's the second to last characteristic. Those are our confessions. Here's the last one. If you Google what is Reformed theology, no one puts this in there. But I do believe in this, and I want to add this in there just so that you know. One of the characteristics about Reformed theology is that's really pastoral. Reformed theology is not for the academics. It's supposed to be pastoral. It's for you. The story goes during the Protestant Reformation, 
with Martin Luther that as Martin Luther was getting a haircut, the barber asked him, the barber supposedly was this guy, Peter Beskendorf, Dr. Luther, how do you pray? And Martin Luther, according to the story, went back, wrote a 40-page paper about how to pray because he wanted to give it to his barber. See, the heart of the Reformation is not to corner the market on truth or to say we know more than any other people. The heart of the Reformation was pastoral. There were abuses in the church that Martin Luther and the Reformers wanted to correct. They wanted people to be assured of their salvation, to grow in Jesus, and to say, if you're united Jesus, you don't have to just go to the Pope and to a priest to get forgiveness. You could go directly to Jesus. You could have the Bible. You could read the Bible, pray to Jesus directly. The hallmark of Reformed theology is that we want to glorify God the most, and pastorally, it wanted to give Christianity back to the people. That's why Paul captures this in verse 16. He says, this word is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That word profitable means value and usefulness. The main reason Paul says scripture is good is because it's valuable and useful, because it's inspired and infallible. And then he goes into four different ways that it's valuable pastorally for people, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training, for righteousness. If you summarize that, you're saying the Bible is inspired, it's good for you, for holiness, is pastoral. Theology can never be separated from its ultimate goal of holiness and righteousness. And friends, if you didn't realize this, we live in the same times as Timothy did because the verses 1 to 9 also describe us and our culture, doesn't it? That we're lovers of money and there's lovers of self. There's sexual debauchery. There are same challenges that we face pastorally. We are still proud. We're arrogant. The world is arrogant. There's abuse. There's disobedience. People are ungrateful. There's unholy. We're unholy. There are people who are slanderous and heartless. The world will tempt and challenge our hearts and our thinking to fall victim to the way the world will teach you. But the Apostle Paul doesn't just tell this to Timothy. He tells you too. He says, don't worry. Persecution will come. But don't worry. You have great resources and advantages. You have good teachers. And you have an open Bible for the people. We live in a pluralistic, individualistic, relativistic society that jettisons absolute truth or saying, no, we have this truth that should make us compassionate and empathetic and loving. And we're in the same situation as Timothy was, but we had the same resources. We have good teachers, and we have an open Bible. And so even as Paul comes to Timothy, he comes to us, and he says to Timothy, but as for you... And I'm saying that in that same verse that Paul, God is saying that, but as for you, New Life Press, as for you, you, however, follow the example of Jesus. You follow the teaching of Jesus. And if you do, you and I will be okay because we have teachers and more importantly, we have an open Bible. That is our core value. That's what we celebrate, the authority of Scripture, the glory and sovereignty of God, the confessions being Christ-centered, in this pastoral heart to bring Jesus to people in this evangelistic and missions effort for the sake and the glory of his church. So if you ever know or are curious about what New Life Press is, what we celebrate, what we love, what we talk about, our first core value is that we are a church that strives to be reformed in our theology. And that's God's word. Let's turn to the Lord. Let's pray.